welcome to the Vertiguys podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're here to check out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And we have made it all the way to Hellblazer issue 50. Big 5-0. We are covering Hellblazer number 51 also today. Now, where we had last left John Constantine Hellblazer, he had sprung a deal that got him out of dying of cancer by pulling one over on the three Lords of the Fallen, who were right pissed about it. He had helped out the spirit of Christmas, or rather the spirit that doesn't like Christmas very much because it was stolen from him by taking him out to the pub and getting him drunk. The spirit of the piss-up. Yeah. And he had finally gotten Kit to be his girlfriend. Yeah, that's right. Kit Ryan, his old friend. Brendan's old girlfriend. They have finally got together. And... That is more or less where we pick up in Hellblazer number 50, Remarkable Lives. Oh, is it? I had been saying it like Remarkable Lives. Like, we thought that oh, Remarkable... Oh, like the spirit of the piss-up lives. Right, 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 exactly. Like, we thought that Remarkable had died, but Remarkable lives. <laughs> I mean, if you call yourself Remarkable, that's like a pretentious-ass name, even for super people. Sort of like, Fletch Lives? <laughs> I think Victor Victorious Mancha can look down on you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Remarkable, really. I guess if your name was Mark. If you were like a cyborg oh. created by Ultron <laughs> and your name was Mark. <laughs> we do talk about Vertigo comics on this show, people. Yeah, eventually we get around to it. This issue, Remarkable Lives, and it, I mean... You can't hear it, but I'm glaring. <laughs> it's not pronounced. You can't prove me wrong. <laughs> Uh, this issue was written by Garth Ennis and has art by Will Simpson. And colors by Tom Zuko. A cover by Tom Canty. On this cover, we have a seductive-looking Constantine turning I... a corner in a dark sewer or alley looking back at the viewer. He's I... got a cigarette in his purple silk-gloved hand. I wrote, Anime Boyfriend Hellblazer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> Those gloves are quite a fashion statement. Yeah, the cigarettes aren't the only thing that's silk cut. <laughs> so we open on John and Kit in bed together where they've apparently been for three days since the last issue. Right. Constantine gets out of bed, starts singing uh, Hard Day's Night to himself. He's going to flash his ass at the reader here. Yeah, we see some booty. I thought that was funny, Hard Day's Night. He apparently thought it was funny, too. Why did you think it was funny? Hmm? Oh, because he has not been hard at work. Oh, Oh, yeah, okay. But maybe he does feel that he should be sleeping like a log. It's ironic, yes. (laughs) John says he's going to have to go out for a while. Why? Because there's a load of dead birds in the bathroom sink, and scrawled on the mirror in their blood, it says, Hampstead Heath. And for some reason, we're assuming Constantine didn't do this. Man does not keep a clean bathroom. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. He manages off-screen to clean up the birds... And the blood in the bathroom without Kit noticing, which is pretty impressive. Coats up and heads out. Whoever this sick frigger is who's pissing me about, he'd better watch his arse as of now. But John's bravado begins to fade as he makes his way out to Hampstead Heath, and he sees fucking werewolves and phantoms and shit. Yeah, I've written here John is pretending he's not scared. I guess I don't know why I felt so sure that he, that he wasn't just genuinely not scared. Familiarity with the character, I guess. We've got a reasonably good drawing of a werewolf here. That's just a shadow of a werewolf. Well, that's a, the, that's one way to draw him, man. I guess it looks menacing enough. Yeah. Here there's a zombie guy. Spine is all that exists of his midsection. Yeah, so this sort of skeleton with a maybe a mustache? Bit of a mustache? Yeah. It says, Constantine, follow. Shit Creek again. So, yeah, he's describing that half of London's freaks and phantoms are walking out of the city and into these woods. Unfortunately, we don't get a terribly good look at most of the monsters. That's mostly an off-screen procession of phantoms. Not like the one in Sandman number 50. Oh, yeah. We got much more better art there. Jesus! Who's there? I am. There is a guy sitting on a fallen tree wearing a jacket. Yeah, and he is looking... Just as cool and relaxed as can be. 
and around his neck is an upside-down cross. Oh, yeah, so there is. He is uh, flanked by a wolf and a naked woman, and he tells John, relax, he's not going to hurt him. Do you know who I am? Of course. I've read about you. Never thought we'd meet. You're the hunter in the night with a thousand names, but only one title. You're king of the vampires. Now, throughout this issue, we have several entire pages devoted to the backstory of the King of the Vampires, and several more entire pages devoted to the backstory of John Constantine. Yes, exactly. The remarkable lives of John Constantine and the King of the Vampires. Oh, okay, I guess I can kind of see it your way now. No, no I'm convinced. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> the, the King of the Vampires has many names, but only one title. Maybe one of those names is remarkable. Let's just keep it rolling. So, uh, in this first installment of the Xavier Files, nobody knows where he came from, but he is the first vampire, and his first victim was the first man on Earth. Right. I don't actually know if he's called Adam. I called him Adam in my notes, the first yeah. man on Earth. But we see him here. He's portrayed as a black guy, and Kilimanjaro is mentioned. I didn't realize that they knew this far back that humanity began in Africa. I thought that was like a, a realization of the later part of the 90s. I don't know. We've got a kind of a creepy shadowy figure perched in a tree watching the first man here. And it's made clear that he bit the first man after he had had his children, so he didn't end the human species right there. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know that song, uh, you know that song, Dragula? <laughs> like the second time today or in the last couple of days. Anyway, go on. That someone has brought up that Someone's song. brought up Dragula to me. So you do know it. Yeah. Well, you know how he says, like, I don't know anything he says. I can't <laughs> understand that man singing. Well, I think he says, dead I am the one exterminating son. But, like, vampires aren't exterminating humans. They need them to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a major point of contention in Castlevania Season 2. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I would bring up the BBC series Ultraviolet, but why would anybody do that? Oh, you, well, you liked it. I think you should just admit to our listeners that you liked the BBC series Ultraviolet. I'm not sure it was on BBC. It could have been on Sky 1. It had Idris Elba before he was famous. Oh, oh, did it? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, anyway, to spoil the crap out of that series, they're following a project which they believe to be a way that vampires are going to synthesize fake human blood, like true blood, all season. And at the end of the series, they figure out they're synthesizing human blood not so that they can not feed on humans, but so that they can finish off humans. Oh! So they can exterminate them. Yep. That's scary. He also says, Dead I am the life, dig into the skin. Okay, that all sounds pretty vampiric. Knuckle crack the bone. Well, the knuckle is a bone, buddy. <laughs> 21 to win. That's the rules of blackjack. <laughs> you're just, you're just off topic now. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to read a lot of this wordiness, but humanity's fate was sealed with the snapping of a neck, the tearing of skin, and the slow, luxuriant sucking of every drop of the crimson prize within. From the moment humanity was born, the dark things that stalk humanity were there. Yeah, well, dark things that stalk humanity. Generally, but also vampires specifically. Yeah. For even as infant humanity was born from the evolutionary chain onto the African savanna full of hope and promise and potential for our magnificent future, so the dark things that hold us back and feed upon our weaknesses were gathering, mouths watering at the prospect of so succulent a feast. I take issue with the technique here. You know, let's cut away to a one-page spread and some text explaining what it's about. Honestly, it feels kind of like padding the comic book. This should be... Oh, I'm sure that it was. This should be a large size issue because it's number 50. And the story of John's meeting with the King of the Vampires isn't enough to fill it. No, I'm almost sure that what happened is that Garth Ennis wrote a 22-page script and they wanted a 32-page comic. Yeah. So they just went through and added all these sort of one-page art pieces with their little narrations later. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the technique here, but at least the writing is reasonably good in those pages. Yeah. At least the flowery language is good. Yeah, and, and 
Garth Ennis can't generally, or not can't generally, I should say, he obviously can. He doesn't usually write like that, so it's interesting to see that he can. Yeah. But he doesn't have a co-writer on this issue, does he? Nope, it just says Garth Ennis and Will Simpson. Well, it says William Simpson, but yeah. The corresponding Xavier Files page of John is considerably shorter. Well, it says John Constantine, con man, joker, thief, magus. Who the hell is he? Now, John Constantine, we often hear him referred to as a con man, but he's not really a con man unless you count conning the devil into taking your lung cancer away, or unless you count suckering people at gambling. He does do that a lot. I would call him a gambler before I'd call him a con man for pulling that shit, but whatever. Oh, you know what? They did convince Malcolm McLaren to pay them to do an exorcism on a... On a haunted amplifier. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, that was... <laughs> that was just downright unneighborly. <laughs> yeah, we don't actually <clears throat> see him tricking his way into people's wallets very often. Theoretically, it could be something he does to make money, but it's not something we really see him doing. We only see him use his facility with lying against demons and things most of the time. So we cut back now to the conversation going on between Constantine and the King of the Vampers. Or Kev, for short. (laughs) Kev begins saying that he has gathered all the monsters in London here tonight. And we see a bunch of weird monsters. Plus this uh, bishop-looking guy. Well, yeah, he, he brought his children to meet the strangeness of London. And John is the king of the strangeness of London. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't use that phrase, King of the Strangeness. That's that's me. That but... sounds like a pretty cool album. <laughs> yeah, you could have a cover of Dragula on there. <laughs> Everyone that the city casts aside, or who walks outside its stupid boundaries. And you. More than any of them, you. Kingy supposes that John doesn't think he has much in common with these monsters. I mean, amongst lots of others, there's a fat bloke over there with steel spikes shoved through him, from bollocks to throat, and a two-foot-long forked tongue. I don't honestly think we'd have a lot to talk about, do you? Ha, that's funny. I like that. Um, Kev asks what John thinks of his contemporaries, the rest of the trench coat brigade, so to speak. What would you call them? Investigators? Oh, Christ, those bastards. You don't like them? If you're talking about all those pricks who use magic like it was water and dress up like twits, no, I friggin' well don't. We get another cutaway here. This is... John failing to save Astra. Yeah, 14 years ago when John escaped the mouth of hell and Astra didn't. Right, that was 14 years ago and further north, it says, which is a phrase I like. Elsewhere we learn that the vampire spent his happiest days in Rome. He had the legions of Rome spreading decadence throughout the world. Yeah, and people were so into orgies and thrill-seeking back then that many of them would have willingly delivered themselves into Dracula's hands. Or, not Dracula, but the King of the Vampires, who is not Dracula. Yeah, I guess we've never heard any indication that he was that particular vampire. Right. But nonetheless, they would they would willingly have led themselves into the King of the Vampires' hands, even if they had known what was in store for them. Although, uh, it is strongly implied they did not. Right. So he could feed on slaves and rich people alike. Knights of wine and roses and rich red water of life. The delicious splendor that was Rome. Are any of the people in this picture the vampire? Or is that just, like, a bunch of people he killed? I think that that's him lying back with the people crawling over him. Okay, he's soaked he, in blood, but he's not actually dead. Yeah, he's got blood running out of his mouth because he's just had such an excess of it. Okay. Now, the king of the vampires asked Constantine why he doesn't like his fellow sorcerers. Because they're all wankers. I mean, doesn't everything just go perfectly for them? A little bit of buggering about with spells and shit and bingo, problem solved. And look at me, for Christ's sake. I can barely hold it together day to day. Have I met the stranger, or the baron, or doctor... Shit, what's his name? Well, whatever, there's loads of bloody doctors. They've all disappeared up their own arses and forgotten about life. Now, this could refer to Dr. Fate or Dr. Occult, who are both magic-using characters in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. It could also be a slight dig at Doctor Strange, right? Marvel's uh, yep. occult doctor. It could also be a dig at Doctor Who when he says there's loads of bloody doctors. Yeah, I guess that's true. Doctor Who is yet another 
heroic man of mystery under the title Doctor. I guess I thought before I ever saw Doctor Who that the premise of Doctor Who was that Doctor Who, or the Doctor, muddled around with both science stuff and magic stuff. But actually, there is no magic stuff in Doctor Who. The general rule seems to be that although sorcery exists, it's actually another form of science. It's all explicable through technology. Mm. Oh yeah, and now he's making fun of Jason Blood. I am Jason Blood. I I may have met you. Or, or, no matter. I forget so much, but then so little matters, wouldn't you say? And I wrote down... Good Jason Blood impression. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny, because I think the King of Vampires, like, says those exact words later. Yeah. So apparently they've met. Can you imagine that conversation? So, you're Jason Blood. Do you have some? <laughs> I thought the old bog god had promise, but he just bollocked it all up. If he'd let me help him, he could have been something, but oh no. Instead of cleaning up the planet... And he could have done it easy. He sods off and starts fighting the frigging vegetable wars, for God's sake. I don't know if that's an accurate summation of the Alan Moore period in Swamp Thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I know it's a pretty accurate impression of the way Alan Moore writes Jason Blood. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll come back to that much, much later in the podcast. <laughs> also, you cannot skip over this. The rest of them might be content to spend the time fighting the Crimson Dongbiter or whoever, but I want to do, do something worthwhile. The Crimson Dong Fighter. That's his idea of a superhero name. A supervillain name. <laughs> right. No, I just imagine that that's like, you know, like one of those like Soviet superheroes, you know? Oh, yeah, okay. I get the way it, yeah. they give blowjobs in Russia is terrible. <laughs> I don't think you can back that up. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so while most of the super magic types are... Having pointless super fights, John tries to do things that are worthwhile to address real problems, like mad old bastards killing kids and so on, and as usual, I end up doing more harm than good. Don't even know why I try. We get another cutaway here. This is John Constantine, covered in bruises and looking very fearful, whilst wrapped up in a straitjacket in a padded cell. Yeah, so we learned that Raven Scar really sucked for John. He had ECT during the day, and he was tortured by the orderlies who had heard that he killed a kid in, in Newcastle at night. Yeah, so this is a bit of a retcon. I don't think it has ever been established before that John was tortured while in Ravenscar. And I'm not sure it's a retcon that entirely makes sense. Now, I didn't go back and check this, but I know that there is a scene where John is on the grounds of Ravenscar, or has just left Ravenscar, and he's kind of chewing the place out. Okay. And as I recall, the tone of that doesn't really say anything about physical abuse. He just, you know, doesn't like the place because he had no autonomy while he was there. Yeah, um, it's certainly not clear to me how he left Ravenscar. This makes it sound a little bit more like he was involuntarily committed, as he was undergoing some pretty radical procedures that he obviously didn't want. Right. Yet he seems to have left under his own power later on. There was a panel, though. I remember one panel that had him... I can't tell you which issue, but it was very early on that had him dangling from handcuffs by a pipe and several policemen were preparing to beat him. Oh, I don't okay. know if, that, if it was established that that took place at Ravenscar, but the idea that, that law enforcement took some kind of vengeance on him for Astra was established. Okay. So maybe a retcon, maybe not. We learned that Kev was also a fan of World War One. He liked to prowl the deserted battlefields at night, enjoying the misery of people dying for no reason. Yeah, it talks about the delicacies of Flanders Field and kind of implies that he feeds on despair as well as on blood. Is calling him Kev your idea? or did you? I just didn't want to say King of the Vampires every time. Fair enough. He rejoiced in the depraved glory of a life that brought sick new wonders every day. Oh, you know what I just realized? What's that? The King of the Vampires is hanging out with the King of Pain. The King of Pain? Well, because Sting has that song, King of Pain. Oh, okay. <laughs> and John Constantine looks like Sting. Got it. There are few rewards for people like you, John, says King of the Ring. I've no idea why you do the things you do either, to be honest. Hold on. Let's just keep it at Constantine, okay? You haven't heard me getting chummy, have you? But as John finishes this little rant, he sees that Kev is 
in conference with one of his underlings. Oi, what's the big secret? Yeah, Chicken a King begs John to excuse him for a moment because there's somebody spying on their conversation. And the uh, monsters bring out a cop who apparently came to investigate the voices. Oh, Christ. Oh, shit. Oh, dear. Let me guess. You were walking past the wood on patrol and you heard voices. So you decided to investigate. You poor bastard. And it looks like the King of the Vampires here pulls off the back of this guy's head and peels until he can get at his brain, which he then drinks his blood out of. Yeah, never heard of blood-brain barrier, I guess. I'm sure there's actually blood inside the person's head. Yeah, I mean, if no blood goes to it, you die. Yeah. So this is remarkably horrible. I mean, this is some effective gore here. Yeah, but this particular portrayal of a vampire is not one for the old neckbite. He is always, you know, in this one instance in the present day, and then a bunch of times in these little one-page flashbacks that we get, he's always drinking people's blood in weird ways. Yeah, yeah, he mentioned he likes to rip hearts out. Yeah. With Adam, he broke his neck first. Yeah. So it finally occurs to John that whatever the King of the Vampires wants, it'll be bad news. And he starts to come up with a plan. I'll get out of here. I'll walk away from this bastard and his collection of walking excrement. I'll go back where I don't have to think about any of this. I will. We get a recap of John's good times with Kit and Brendan, smoking opium and secretly loving Kit. I wrote, good Irish opium days. God! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Brendan, faults and all, was the finest man he'd ever met. And Kit was young and beautiful, a sparkle in her eye and a laugh that ran out like liquid gold. Then we learn that the king's court is underground, where it looks like the vampires mostly feed on ancient things no human should have to look upon. That's spooky. Seems like there's a lot of gross fish. (laughs) I thought they meant, like, shoggoths and stuff. Well, maybe a shoggoth is just a really gross fish. It's referred to as a madman's wonderland. Their little underground kingdom. I like that phrase. Yeah. And they plan all too brief visits to the surface to, to get the good stuff, to prey on humans. Yeah. But no one need ever grow old. The dead don't age, it says. Which puts me in mind of the Kiefer Sutherland movie, The Lost Boys. Oh, sure, yeah. Because yeah, they don't grow up. Yeah, I watched that movie this week. I've never seen it. Oh, you've never seen it? I've never seen The Lost Boys. Oh, man. Maybe my affinity for vampires in 80s-esque jackets would be greater if I had seen it. Yeah, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so John tells Don King to get to the point. I knew you were going to use Don King. They get pretty bad if I'm allowed to use all of them. Okay. Oh, no, we're we're getting all. (laughs) If if we reach the end of the episode and you haven't used them all, you just got to read them off. Okay, the king laughs at John's ordinary bloke act. It doesn't hide the fact that you're one of the most intelligent, able, and daring occult figures that's ever lived. That's why I want you. This is also the page where he says, it's a good Jason Blood impression. He wants John to work for him as a spy, to keep an eye on the mystical world and let him know if anyone means to move against him. And this is my favorite exchange in the comic book. Jesus. No, he's probably a little out of your league. Ho frigging ho. It's all out of my league, chum. You've got the wrong man. I hardly know what anyone else is up to these days. All I want is to be left alone and for the bad shit in my life to sod off and die. I don't do anything anymore. Yeah, at this point in the comic, John has sort of left the game behind, or at least tried to. Having pulled one over on the Three Lords of the Fallen, he's decided not to do anything so insanely dangerous again. Well, he's sort of trying to retire, although we did see him come back to deal with a ghost kind of briefly. And that incident, not the ghost, is exactly what Kev pulls out to use as a counterpoint. What about what you did to the Three Lords of the Fallen? If that isn't special, I don't know what is. Our next little one-page cutaway isn't really about the King of the Vampires. It's about the First of the Fallen, who is sitting alone, brooding, inconsolable, and making plans that will be bad for the entire world, but especially bad for Constantine. Yeah, what's the line here? In a room where living flesh screams from garrote string walls and the damned chant litanies of despair from far below, it fails to lift his spirits for an instant. Not all the suffering in hell can make him happy. 
It's also mentioned here that he's even forgotten God and Jesus in his fury. Constantine is public enemy number one now. And now we get a page here on the King of the Vampires' plan to become a cosmic vampire. Billions of years from now, when humanity is gone and the Earth and Sun are dying, the vampire will look over the world he drank dry and smile. While this Earth is exhausted, there are a thousand more in the heavens above, young worlds that have never known his touch, a universe to choose from. He'll rejoice, then, knowing that he's unstoppable, that out in those myriad star fields are plenty more mortals with dreams for better times that will never come, and that he'll be there to revel in their misery and harvest them like cattle. For the King of the Vampires, the future is bright. This is probably my favorite of the King of the Vampires slide pages. The art on it is pretty dope. Yeah, the king standing on the on the blighted earth looking at the dying sun rising that fails to hurt him anymore. This dim gray sun coming over the horizon. It looks pretty cool. But I do have to wonder, okay, he's going to live forever, but how does he plan to get from planet to planet? Can he teleport interstellar distances? Does he design his own spacecraft? I don't really see him building anything. That's kind of the point of him. He's a parasite. Good point. We are told that he can move on moonbeams. Oh, that's a pretty good one. Maybe he uses that. Yeah, zap zap around on those. I don't know if there's another planet with sentient life that the light from the moon can reach, though. Well, all light goes somewhere eventually, and he'll live forever. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, at this point... Give me one. (laughs) So, at this point, one king to rule them all, one king to find them, tells Johnny that they have a lot in common. He uses that old villain tactic, and John quickly calls it out for being an old villain tactic. We have a lot in common, John. That's a load of balls, mate. I've had all sorts of prats trying to convince me I'm like them. It's an old trick, and you can shove it up your arse. You and I have nothing in common. Oh, why are you so sure? Have you any idea what it's like to be a vampire? Ever been tempted to find out? So, trying to sell it to John, he recaps the vampire weaknesses. Garlic is sour, but then so is lemon. The stake through the heart is like a cut finger. Running water makes you itch. And crucifixes, Bibles, holy water, all that bullshit. It's like magic. It only works if you're stupid enough to believe in it. Except for sunlight, you're indestructible. And the things you can do. Your strength is that of a hurricane. You can charm the strictest virgin into a slut. You can walk across moonbeams and go anywhere in the world in an instant. As for the feeding, (laughs) relax. What was disgusting when you were immortal becomes a delight. It's better than sex. Your teeth are so sharp you don't feel the skin tear or the wall of the vein part. And the blood. Imagine sinking your teeth into the choicest leg of lamb and having eight pints of the most exquisite claret rush down your throat. Best of all, it never ends. You can do anything you want. Forever. John asks him, what about your victims? But he says, since when have you been a vegetarian? It's beginning to look like the best I can hope for is death. Hopefully on a permanent basis, John narrates. I'm not interested. But Chandler King isn't looking to turn him right now. He only wants it as a spy. Soon, when you've seen what my life is like, you'll start to want yours to be the same. And I'll happily make it that way. We can do great things together. We can forge something new and dark and beautiful, and those idiots will never stop us with their bloody foolish magic. There's a whole world out there, and I'm hungry. And at this point, we go to... Another cutaway page. It shows a bunch of wolves and a single vampire gathered in a frozen wood. This must be the one less traveled by. And it points out that vampires feed on the evil of humanity, which is why they'll never go hungry. Okay, that's one interpretation, I guess. Yeah, well, you said he fed on despair and misery as much as on blood itself. Well, yeah, but, like, which is it? Do they feed on blood? Do they feed on despair and misery? Do they feed on humans doing bad things? You know, make up your mind. It's definitely clear that he's evil, and he appreciates good evil when he sees it. Now, in uh, Strife's strike file here, (laughs) Strife is wondering if perhaps one day Constantine could ever be a hero. Right. Really, though, he's just a man. Perhaps one day, if we let him, he can be a hero. Okay, John slowly lights a cigarette and grins. If you're so hungry, why don't you just eat shit? What? John thinks the job offer sucks. Kingy didn't understand why John hated all those other magic assholes. He says he doesn't want to be a Superman. He just wants an ordinary life. 
You think I'm putting on an act, eh? Man of mystery pretending to be Joe Average, right? I don't suppose it occurred to you, it might be the other way round. Now, I want to point out here that when he tells him to eat shit, it's a sort of a cutaway panel in the middle of a great page of the King of the Vampires surrounded by his whole gruesome court. Oh, yeah. Even it's... the tree that he's leaning on seems to have an evil face. Yeah, this guy's a mummy with an axe. Yeah, I mean, mummies are slow moving. I guess maybe having reach is an advantage. <laughs> there's also a ram. Did you notice that there's a ram? Yeah, he's got sort two of pages goat. back. Yeah, there's a weird, <laughs> there's a panel where there's a ram hanging, hanging up behind him for some reason. John says he knows who he is. He's real. That King You Do says if John can tell him why his boring life is better than being king of the vampires, he can walk out of here alive. Easy. Can you go for a walk in the park and hear the birds sing in the morning? Can you kiss a girl and know she loves you? Can you go out and get pissed with your mates? I can. And just so we're sure who's better off, why don't we sit here together and watch the sun come up in an hour or so? Shut up! Shut the frig up! Get out of here! I just want to point out that he's an absolute embodiment of evil and he just said frig. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's very old. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the king is furious, but he lets John go with a warning. First of the Fallen hasn't forgotten, and big things are in motion. Yeah, I think he's part honoring the agreement here. John Constantine won the argument, so he has to let him go. Yeah. But also, it is going to be more entertaining to see what the First of the Fallen has waiting for this guy than to kill him yourself. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he just knows that it's really going to suck being John Constantine in a couple of months. <laughs> right. Well, a couple of months, a couple of years, a couple of decades, who knows how long it'll take. But, you know, hell has your number. Right. If I don't get you, somebody else will. Are you listening to me, dammit? Sire? He's gone, and dawn is on the way. Let's go below. There's fresh beasts in the pens, and we can drink our fill before we sleep. I've lost my appetite. Bastard. John leans against a tree, smoking a cigarette, and watches the sun come up, and remarks to himself that the sunlight is... magic. It's a cold morning, but the sunrise is beautiful, all the more so for the night he just barely survived. He heads on home to Kit. Hope she won't be too busy. I think I fancy another three days in bed. That was a fun issue. Do you think it's stronger or weaker for the, um, the device of having the, the cutaways, the Xavier files, the flashbacks? I think that as a device, they are weak, but they introduce some good writing, some interesting ideas and some cool art into mm -hmm. the comic. So even though, like, as an, as an idea in the abstract, they're not great, they actually do a end up adding to the comic. Okay, okay. I guess, especially recapping them just now, it feels like they really break up the pace of John's conversation with the King of the Vampires. True. But they do definitely give a lot more weight to that character, establishing how old and powerful he is. Yeah, that's true. I could easily see this during the Jamie Delano years being something where we are kind of merely told, or merely left to imagine from Constantine's reaction to someone that they're very important. Right, right. But, yeah, this makes it work a little better. I'm a little cynical of this issue as a way of introducing the King of the Vampires. It, it's my assumption that he's going to go on to be a significant antagonist. And, and basically having him call John out on the carpet when we've never heard that he exists before, come out and have a conversation with him, say, hey, work for me. John says no, and now he's going to want revenge. It all feels a little thin, I guess. See, I had the opposite assumption. I didn't think he was going to come back. I thought, like, they want to do a one-shot mm -hmm. for issue 50, but they also want it to be a kind of weighty-feeling one-shot, because it's issue 50. Okay. So it's like, okay... Well, what if John meets the king of all vampires? What if we introduce just a really powerful antagonist that John's not going to be able to defeat right now? Right, just a really a, a one-shot antagonist, but a really powerful one-shot antagonist. Okay, okay. Somebody who's important to the whole world, not just, you know, haunting a fucking flat in Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a one-shot, it's not bad. Well, moving on to a comic book that is bad... Hellblazer number 51. <laughs> this is, from my admittedly limited research, this is a beloved issue of Hellblazer. But we can talk about 
why and whether it's good after we finish the comic, I suppose. Or in the middle, at least. The cover portrays John Constantine surrounded by washing machines. Yes, there's like a bank of laundromat washing machines. Actually, I think it's the same image of a laundromat washing machine repeated nine times across the cover, except that the center one is instead Constantine. Now this is Hellblazer number 51, counting to ten. Guest writer John Smith, guest artist Sean Phillips, and colors by Tom Zuko. Cover by Sean Phillips also. Okay, we open on a nine grid of two tight aspect shots of elements of this laundromat. Like, they're barely being glimpsed, given only the bare glances necessary to perform this very familiar task. I thought it was a cool effect. We see the arm stuffing clothes and quarters into the machine is wearing John's coat. Yeah, and the narration informs us Jerry Monahan, an old school friend of Constantine, also a pain in the ass. He's a journalist working for a newspaper called The Naked Truth, and he was apparently investigating some occult shit, ended up being possessed, John had to try and exorcise him, and when he finally got the demon out, Jerry shat himself. And Constantine opines, I just hope this stuff gets the stains out, because there's no way I'm washing them by hand. Which made me wonder, why is Constantine doing Jerry's laundry? I mean, I guess he didn't want to send him away smelling like shit. Well, he's not even sending him away yet, and we're going to come back to that. Oh, I see. Jerry is still in his house and has nothing to wear, so he has to wash his clothes so that he won't have to leave naked. Yeah. Gotcha. We get a two-page spread of the outside of the laundrette. Story of my friggin' life, that one. And that's where we get our title, counting to ten. Back inside, John says that laundromats remind him of school. Too bright and too hot. He feels like he's in detention. Yeah, it's interesting to me that John's primary association with school is detention. <laughs> interesting, but not surprising. Now, there's a girl here playing with a doll? Yeah, so we get a look at the various people inhabiting the laundromat. There's a little girl playing with a doll. She has another kid with her, I'm guessing a brother. There's a young black man who's talking on the phone. Yeah, and it seems like he's kind of rudely having loud conversations about inappropriate topics. He mentions buggery in front of these three old ladies. Right. Yeah, there's the three old ladies, and there's a mother with a breastfeeding child. John says he wishes he'd gone to a laundromat with a better class of misanthrope. Oh yeah, I also, like, is this a Hecate appearance? I mean, no Hecate in this series, but old ladies, middle-aged ladies, young girl? Well, the young girl is really too young to be a maiden. Okay. And there's three slash four old ladies. I don't think so. Okay. I wonder what Jerry's up to now. Probably pissed off with the silver by the time I got back. But John decides, sod it, at least he's an old friend who's still alive, and there are few enough of those. Now John has a very important line. Girlfriends, the odd boyfriend, they all have a nasty habit of walking out on me. A couple of weeks and they've had enough. The mystique gets shabby, the sex goes stale, your lovable man of mystery turns into the bloke next door. So this is the issue that canonically establishes John's bisexuality. Is this the first time that it's been shown? It's the first time it's been explicit. Oh, okay. And this line ties into John's conversation with the uh, king, 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 banana phone last issue. Is he a man of mystery pretending to be an ordinary bloke, or is he an ordinary bloke at heart? Yeah, see, it's interesting that you see this issue as referencing the issue before, since I think that this issue is almost certainly being written at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm as the issue before. Well, it's a, it's a tension that's been going on in John's life for a few issues now. Okay. He sort of wants to retire. Is he a person who can live without the thrills, you know? Or is he actually an ordinary person who just manages to put on constant time long enough to survive? I do think it's probably worth mentioning, since you bring it up, that this issue almost certainly doesn't take place at the same time in continuity as it appears. For one thing... Jerry broke into Constantine's house and Kit wasn't there. Right, exactly. He's way too relaxed about Jerry possibly stealing all his shit for it to be Kit's shit. In addition to which, he's pretty bitter about his love life. And at the present time in the comic, John is happily with Kit. Right. John is sitting there reading his paper when one of the old ladies interjects. Penny for him, love. Actually, I liked this because he holds up his paper, but our POV continues to pan across the laundromat as if he's ignoring his paper to keep people watching. 
Your thoughts. A penny for your thoughts. You look like the cat that got the cream. Not me, love. Not by a long chalk. So this old lady and her fellow old lady think that they've seen John here before, but he denies it. Columbo, she says, because he's wearing a ratty old brown trench coat. He's nothing like Columbo. Columbo had a squint. But he's got the coat, though, hasn't he? That's what I'm saying. He's got the long coat. Now, at this point, we see the little kid is playing with the creepy doll that the girl formerly had. She is spread out on the floor drawing. She takes up almost the bottom third of the page as she looks up to observe Constantine. And just like the kind of look on her face and the structure of her face and the fact she's drawing reminded me of Realm from Final Fantasy VI. Oh, doesn't she look like Realm from Final Fantasy VI there? She looks kind of girl with the pearl earring to me. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mean to, uh, to embarrass you with the caliber of my reference there. <laughs> Moving on! <laughs> John asks what the old ladies are up to. Turns out they come here every night. There used to be four, but their friend Flory is dead. There's usually four of us, but Flory... And John goes, whoosh! Yeah. <laughs> John is like super leading man in Philip Sorry. He looks like Ward Cleaver. He looks like a cool dad for some reason. Not that Ward Cleaver was a particularly cool dad, but moving on. Yeah, the comparison that came to my mind, especially in that panel and in Turn One Back One Page, that panel, is that he looks like Bruce Willis. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, he's got the got a bit of the receding hairline here. So it comes out, Flory used to join them at the laundromat every night. Flory is dead. They are still convinced that she's going to join them anyway. Yeah, we get the story here of what happened to Flory. She broke her leg just before Christmas, which this is, well, I was going to say this is shortly after Christmas, if it's in continuity. Right, we just did a whole thing about how it's not, (laughs) the time frame is wrong, but Christmas just happened. Yeah, her son persuaded her to move in with him, but she apparently hated it because she jumped off the 12th floor balcony. Yeah, and they say something about a smashing view that the 12-story apartment had, which is an interesting pun, you know? You can look out and see a great view, but also she jumped off the balcony, which is where you catch that view and would have smashed herself on the... On the ground below, so she was literally, like, smashed that's, by the smashing view. That's some gallows humor. Yeah. Well, the, the left-hand old lady has gotten up and walked over to the door window to see if someone's coming, which has cast her face into shadow. And we get one panel here of a slipper floating through the air, sort of falling from a high-rise building. She'll be here, though. She always is. We're always here by ten o'clock. In fact, Flory's usually the first one here. Don't forget her leg. It's bound to slow you down a bit, isn't it? Breaking your leg like that. That's it. That's what it'll be. It'll be her leg. (laughs) Yeah. You can't get far without them, can you? She believes every word of it. She really thinks her friend's going to shuffle her way up here from the local bloody mortuary. Poor cow. That's not polite, John. The payphone rings, and the young black man picks it up once again. John imagines with horror if visiting the laundromat was the highlight of his day. Yeah, and he says something weird here that I didn't understand. After the Bangkok deal me and Kipling made in 82, I'll have the lapsed martyrs after me arse the second I snuff it. Right, so he says he'd rather kill himself than have the trip to the laundromat be the highlight of his day. But then he says he can't because of the Bangkok murders. It's kind of weird that he doesn't mention the Lords of the Fallen here. Right. No, you must live. Yeah, that's like the really specific recent reason not to kill himself what are the bangkok martyrs do you know what i really have no idea i think it's just one of those look john had an adventure one time references yeah you you said something about the tongue man and you're gonna bring him back in mouthfuls what the what's a tongue man (laughs) are these just references to shit that happened in 2000 a.d maybe i don't know well the lapsed martyrs the lapsed martyrs would be Okay, if you're lapsed, then you would go to hell, right? Makes sense. So maybe he expects certain people in hell to be pissed at him. This is like Osaka-level logic. I think it makes perfect (laughs) sense. If you're a lapsed martyr, you go to hell, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that show. (laughs) 
But actually, yeah, this doesn't make any sense because you can't. How can you lapse if you're a martyr? You were you were holy when you died. If you were holy when you died, how could you be a lapsed martyr? Did you have time to lapse? The Just talking guy. about hemorrhoids. <laughs> the young guy on the phone is talking about picking up some stuff, which the kids will love. And this is where Constantine starts watching the clock. Yeah, there's a wide shot of the laundromat here, which is effectively done uh, with the left hand old lady's head blocking part of the shot and the high angle on the room and everyone backed up against the walls. Even though it's a wide shot of the whole environs, it still looks really claustrophobic. Ten o'clock, that's what she said. We're always here by ten o'clock. John starts to catch himself almost believing Flory will be here. And we see a shadow wash over the wall. He says he feels like he's walked into a game show. Like he's a contestant on The Price is Right. Right, the place is starting to feel unreal to him. Which is a thing that can happen when you're in a place for a long time. But maybe something more sinister is going on. Yeah. Now, I want to point out that The Price is Right is an American game show. They must have it in Britain as well. Oh, yeah. A lady is doing a crossword puzzle. She says, abattoir, and we get another whoosh as John turns his head. <laughs> it doesn't literally say whoosh on the page, but the way that he like, the way that he's like looking in the next panel is just like, it's like he turned very dramatically. Yeah, that's a good point. We can see that he's turning his head left to right just to follow the people in the, in the laundromat. Also worth mentioning that there is a dog in this laundromat, but nobody ever says woof. Yeah, so not written by Garth Ennis. This is the, a word search, not a crossword. Oh, you're right. It's a word search. And all the words that she has found in it are bad ones. Yeah, all either hell or sex words. Well, or... Which uh, you can probably buy a word search that's all sex words, right? Like I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> or butchery. Because one of them's abattoir, another one is awful. Ah, okay. For a moment, everything goes blurred, and John has essentially a panic attack. I mean, that's what he identifies it as a moment later. It was a panic attack. Right, yeah. He's having a panic on the streets of London here. <laughs> but as he comes down from it, he convinces himself it was nothing. Look around you. You're in a bloody laundrette, for Christ's sake. Ten minutes walk from home. You turn it into a flake. A grown man getting the heebie-jeebies over a word in a sudden puzzle book. All of a sudden, the young black guy who's been on the phone tells him that the phone has rang again, and it's for him this time. Oh man, he really doesn't want to answer this phone. Look at his face. Yeah, I wrote Det Grimace. <laughs> Det? Dat. Oh. Det Grimace. <laughs> Det Grimace, though. <laughs> As he, like, makes a very pained expression and says, Hello. The voice on the line is describing various horrors in kind of a word salad Mad Libs kind of way. Butterflies pinned on a white girl's thigh. What? There's a fetus crucified in the womb, nailed to pelvis and spine. And oh, he's so hungry. It's just nonsense. It's just some, some nonsense here. Yeah, just gross nonsense. The voice tells him to shut up and listen. It tells him he's hiding and he's forgotten about Jerry. What are you doing here, Constantine? Who are you hiding from? It isn't Jerry, is it? John hangs up, which I'd have done sooner. <laughs> Boring conversation, anyway. John oh, so you're allowed to quote Han Solo? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? When did I say you couldn't? When I quoted Han Solo last week. Oh, yeah, I gave you a look because you were implying that I was wasting my time doing a podcast for all of these fine people. <laughs> that I contributed nothing. <laughs> oh, I mean, we, we know they're all listening for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you a look again! <laughs> Shit. It's true, everybody. He's giving me a look. As John returns to his seat, he steps over the frizzy-haired girl's drawing, entitled A Family Holiday, that depicts corpses strewn over a car wreck. That's a bit messed up. Yeah, there's some kind of evil energy in this laundromat that made the girl draw a bad thing. Have the evil from my dream followed me at my heels? But yeah, of course it's Jerry he's hiding from, he says. We see this panel again. Yeah, we keep seeing this image. I thought it was a hand holding a pair of bolt cutters, but we're going to find out it's something different than that. What are we going to find out that it is? We're going to see a slightly clearer view of that. Where? Uh, it's on the next page. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, it's on the next page. What it actually is is a hand smearing blood on a vertex of some kind of magic circle. That's just part of the exorcism. Part of the exorcism ritual. rite that John did, right? Okay. Jerry's a pain junkie. John is thinking one who seeks out minor possessions for kicks, and this is why the exorcism went wrong. We learn there were sixty or seventy spirits inside Jerry. I'm no sadist. I'm not going to sit around while they run him through, watch them unravel him from the backbone down. He can sort it out himself. I mean, who knows? Maybe he's recovered already. Maybe he's out flogging my Yi Sing China wear right now. In which case, good luck to him. But I don't want to know anymore. I've had enough of this crap to last a lifetime. If he wants to play with fire, fine, but he can leave me out of it. I don't know what Yi Sing is, but it's clearly, like, brand name. Yeah. And I would not have expected John to own brand name China. He had a bunch of nice things, it seemed like, back at the beginning of the series when he was wearing nice suits. Ah, uh, fair enough. Before Mighty Mouse, before Nurgle destroyed his first apartment and killed his landlady and all that. It seemed like he was doing okay for himself. It's interesting to me here that he insists that his abandoning Jerry is because he's not sadistic enough to watch Jerry be killed. Right? It's not that he got lazy or decided to preserve his own ass. Yeah, I mean, John has so much guilt that he, even if the actual selfless thing to do would be to hang around and, you know, make Jerry suffer, he can't bring himself to do it. Hmm. I guess that makes sense, yeah. And I think he's being literal when he says that Jerry's a masochist. Right, like, Jerry put himself through this deliberately, and John doesn't have the stomach for it. Yeah, John doesn't want to be the... <laughs> he's he's kind of sucking John into his shit, and John isn't, doesn't want to take it. Yeah, I just, I know John... I know not doing stuff is a pretty big part of the John Constantine schedule. <laughs> right. That's got its own code in his planner. <laughs> Executive time, he calls it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I had to wonder if this was another situation where he's like, well, you're fucked, bye. <laughs> or if he's being accurate in what he's describing. If he's genuinely just not willing to give Jerry the punishment that he wants. The baby bites its mother's breast. John Constantine thinks to himself that Jerry is a 24-carat shithead, and at that moment notices that the clock has struck ten. Well, she's not coming, is she? John thinks to himself that he can walk out any time, but then they hear a loud crash. Something has gone through the window of the butcher's shop next door. It's Flory, the old ladies conclude. She's just late because she had to make herself look decent. Well, Flores, she's come a long way. John thinks how easily he could escape. There's a pub just across the street. A pub full of people and light and noise and life. Scores chalked up by the dartboard. Old men playing dominoes. Lou Reed on the jukebox. Sod this for a game of soldiers. The dog is growling at something unseen. So there's a dead woman in the butcher's shop. So bloody what, John says as he walks out of the laundrette. Then he catches a smell on the breeze. Shit and pigs and something sweet like aniseed, like coffee that's been left in a flask for weeks. He can see the broken figure in the butcher's shop move, and he hears the creak of leather, although he says she isn't wearing his shoes, or anything else. He forces himself to just walk calmly towards the pub. Sod it. Not this time. And we see from behind, from foot level, as Flory shows up at the laundromat. We see only the back of her feet in a dripping bag, a Tesco bag, from the shop where she was shopping when she broke her leg. We can also see that she is wearing slippers. No shoes, John? Come on. I feel like I can't decide here if John knows he's just hallucinating and is trying to keep it together, or if he knows that Jerry's demons have gotten out and they're fucking with everyone in the laundromat and he just doesn't care. Or if this is just an unrelated thing, like an unrelated mystical thing that he's decided he's not going to fuck with. Oh yeah, if Flory has come back entirely on her own. Right. We could have brought some gloves. We remembered the coat, though. It's one of mine, but it should fit all right. It'll do till you get home, anyway. Then we'll give that son of yours what for. Yeah, Flory appears to have picked up a kebab skewer from the butcher shop, and I'd written that she's putting it into her eye, but maybe she's just holding it up threateningly. It looks like actually someone's threading a sewing needle. Oh, you're right. Okay, okay. Because there was a focus on the 
from yeah. the kebabs earlier. Yeah, the broken hand by the kebabs. Okay. So, on the final page, we have railroad tracks and graffiti on a building side that says, Take Courage. Somebody who is not John leans up against a wall and vomits, and John narrates, The sodium street lamps turn everything to cinemascope, leaning gritty under a begging bowl sky. In the distance, a dog starts barking and doesn't stop. The end. So it seems like John was as good as his word. He said he wasn't going to bother with it this time, and he didn't. Right, so... The dog in the long run is important, I guess, because that could mean that when he says a dog starts barking, that it is barking in reaction to zombie Flory walking into the floor. Right. So I get that they were trying to do something, like, tense and claustrophobic and atmospheric Mm -hmm. in that issue, Mm -hmm. but I just thought that there was way too much going on and not enough of it well explained. Okay, okay. Why is this a beloved issue? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it's more of a tone exercise than a story. Okay. And I get how somebody could see that it's an effective tone exercise and think that's pretty cool. Okay. I didn't care for it. To me, there's nothing really here except a sense of rising dread. Yeah. At least I can say the ordinary folk stuff was reasonably well done and it's not as wordy or self-explanatory as when Jamie Delano did this kind of thing. (laughs) Fair. I have a lot of thoughts here. I mean... Isn't the point of a claustrophobic horror story like this to get to know the characters trapped and see what they do under pressure? Yeah. But John doesn't care about them, and like John, we never take an interest. I think the writer genuinely seems more horrified at the notion of being trapped in a laundromat with a bunch of people you don't know than the idea that there might be a demon in it. Yeah. And maybe that's what the issue does well. It expresses the sense of being stuck in a strange, unpleasant place with nobody that you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's doing a thing of, like, how do I put this? Like, the everyday is horrible in its own right? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of Hellblazer issues, it seems like, that start off with kind of something ordinary and go in a horrific direction. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of them where the sense of being trapped, having the, the presence of a bunch of people imposed on you, is blurred with the sense of horror from this demonic presence that's taking over the the laundromat, or taking over John's perception, whichever. And it's not clear to us, the reader, how much of it is real. Yeah, I interpreted it all as being real, but but I see your point. Well, where do you think it falls apart as a story? I know you didn't care much for it. Like I said, I think there's too much going on, and none of it is well enough explained. Okay. Especially the big climax that it builds towards kind of falls flat, because, like, it's never super clear what's going on. You know, Flory comes in, she goes into the butcher shop for some reason, that's left to the reader to fill in. She's carrying a bloody bag for some reason, that's left for the reader to fill in. It's kind of urban ghost story-like in its way, right? Yeah. She broke her leg shopping, so she's carrying a bloody shopping bag. Even though she didn't actually die shopping. Right. Yeah, John leaves. What happens to him? We don't know. It just, it, it falls flat because it's never clear enough, I don't think. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, it wasn't clear to me whether John leaving was in any way the right thing to do, and... And his apathy, even though it's in character, always bothers me, you know? Well, I can totally relate to his apathy, though. I didn't want anything to do with this issue either. (laughs) (laughs) But, I I mean, there's just too much nonsense in this issue. Okay. You know, he gets a phone call of just a bunch of nonsense. Like, you know, vaguely goth-flavored nonsense. The word search is all, you know, dark, bad, scary things. Well, yeah, a bunch of creepy stuff happens, and it's not clear why. There's a sense of dread that pervades an otherwise ordinary situation, but it's not clear that that means anything. Well, but it's too specific to just be like, demons have inhabited this laundromat and made it eerie, you know? Like, the word search and the girl drawing, like, a a scene of horror kind of work with that, but the weird guy calling up on the telephone and taunting him about Jerry doesn't. Mm. Okay, okay. You know? I mean, I guess my assumption was that one of the demons from Jerry had tagged along with John, and that's what was doing it in the laundromat. Yeah, it could be. I really don't know what the intention here is for a lot of this stuff. Okay. 
So did this issue remind you of the Sandman issue, 24 Hours? No, I can't say that I made that connection until you just mentioned it. <laughs> the, the connection occurred to me. It's a story of several people trapped and tormented by supernatural evil in kind of a prosaic location. Well, but this are is, they? Or this is worthy of... Uh, no, this is three years later than the Sandman issue. We don't know that that's what's going on. For one thing, like it seems far from clear to me that the old ladies are being tormented rather than being the evil thing themselves. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a valid point. I mean, they seem perfectly delighted to have Flory show up, and at the end it's even implied they're going to they're gonna go after her son for being a bad landlord. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. Well, I guess he's responsible for what happened to her in some way, but it's not clear what that is. But yeah, the old ladies are weird. And that's what the title refers to, I guess, counting to ten, counting to ten o'clock when Flory arrives. Right. But by comparison, again, I feel like Gaiman's story was definitely sadistic. It was almost too much so for you and me. Yeah. But I, this is just apathetic. I'm not, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that issue of Sandman, but it's still better executed than this. I think maybe, how do I put this? I think maybe part of why I dislike that Sandman issue is because it's well done. Okay. It makes us care about characters. And then, like... It was too potent. Kills them off in grotesque ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's both better and worse at the same time. That Sandman issue. Yeah. Well, I think Gaiman always kind of... Gaiman always loves his disposable phantoms. And that's what the issue is about, right? Like, the point of 24 Hours was that it's kind of fucked up to create a character just to torment and kill them. Yeah. But this issue doesn't care about any of the people in its grip. Yeah, and we also don't know that anything particularly bad happens to any of them. They scare John Constantine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's valid. That's valid. I mean, I think Gaiman sort of creates characters just to torture them, and this story is sort of just going to the laundromat as torture. Everyone's being tortured all the time. Right. The 24-hour fluorescent lights. (laughs) Yeah. It is too hot in uh, laundromats, that part is true. Yep. I don't know, I had a lot of thoughts about why it didn't work, and I guess maybe the problem is that there just isn't enough to hook on to. Do you remember that time that we sat in a laundromat in Glasgow for like three hours? Yeah, sure do. That wasn't that much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly! (laughs) Yeah, well, it's kind of James Bond in its way, right? Like, James Bond is always like, Okay, so Ian Fleming was playing Baccarat and thought, what if the fate of the free world depended on this game? Okay. Right? And this is and this is sitting in the laundromat and going, God, this is horrible. A demon could possess the laundromat, and it wouldn't be more horrible. <laughs> it would hardly be noticeably worse. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what it is. It's a very misanthropic issue, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. In our next Hellblazer episode, get ready for Royal Blood. But first, join us two weeks from now for Preacher, Land of Bad Things. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y in this specific context, and in no other context. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode, so check it out. If you want to get at us on Twitter... I'm available on the handle at Vertiguys. I am at BlankCastSean. If you want to send us an email, you can do that vertiguys at gmail.com. That's right. We'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, if you just want to chat about comic books, or if you have ideas for things you'd love to see on the show. We also have a Facebook page where you can contact us, facebook.com slash vertiguys. And however you happen to be listening to the show... Go ahead and leave us a positive review on there. If you leave a positive review on the Apple Podcasts app, we will read it on air. But as always, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Bye. It would be a misnomer to say that I was watching it, but I was recently in a room where the movie Dracula 2000 was playing. Ooh. Now... From what I did catch, the big plot twist of that movie seems to be that Dracula is also Judas Iscariot. Is that right? He killed Jesus. (laughs) Gerard Butler Dracula killed Jesus. (laughs) I don't know how much of it you saw. If I'm not mistaken, like, this movie begins with some guys trying to break into a vault.
That's true. And then they all get killed by the traps from the movie Cube. And then it turns out that it's Van Helsing's vault, and he's got Dracula in there, so he can harvest his blood for eternal life. That's awesome! <laughs> I did not know that at all! I saw I saw a bunch of dudes outside a vault, and later all those dudes were vampires, so I figured that it must be, like, Dracula's vault, or Dracula in the vault. But I did not know that Van Helsing was, like, using him as a blood bag. That's yeah, pretty I think cool. That's, and I think it's Christopher Plummer as Van Helsing. Christopher Plummer's definitely in the movie. Okay. okay. Yeah, that fucking follows. It makes sense that, you know, between the, t- the time of Dracula, which is like the 1850s, uh, to the year 2000, you go from being a somewhat old man to being Christopher Plummer. That's, that's how much aging, if you have vampire blood. Oh, oh, I see. you're right. Okay, yes, he does have vampire blood, so that accounts for it. That's not as big of a plot hole as I was implying. If he's fucking immortal, okay. But yeah, like, the girl I was watching Dracula 2000 with was, like, excited because, like, it's, you know, Gerard Butler. And she thought, like, Gerard Butler was going to be hot. But, like, it really didn't take long. She was like, oh, his hair looks so good. And then, like, oh, he's so young and handsome. And then, like, the third time, it was just like, nope, fuck this shit. <laughs> That's a boy. Give me a man. <laughs> the King of the Vampires. The KOV. Kev, Kevin, Calvin Coolidge, Kingy, King of the Ring, Chicken a la King, Don King, The Ever-Lovin' Blue-Eyed King, One King to Rule Them All, One King to Find Them, Mobile Suit Gundam King, Chandler King, That King You Do, King 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 Banana Phone, King A Song of Sixpence, Buffalo Wild Kings, Tom King.